It's Tuesday, August 31st, and you've got Oz in your ears. Dr. Blowjob, send me a job. I'm out of work and I feel like a slob. Please twist on your magic knob. And Dr. Blowjob, send me, please, please, mend me. Dr. Blowjob, send me a job. Thank you, Bernice. Hey, you're out of work and I'm not. And that's why I can show up to host the one program that puts Americans back to work. One American at a time. Our first job seeker is Sterile Gorgon of Brooklyn, Iowa. Happy to be on the show, uh, Dr. Blowjob. Oh, just call me BJ, Sterile. So tell me, where were you pinked? At Midwest Great Pains Packing, Doctor. I was a standby safety chain operator at the Lamb Sluice. That's hard work, but it <laughs> is work. Now, you stay right where you are, Sterile. I've been doing that for months. Our other job seeker is a first-timer in the line. He's Tweed Eastern from same-sex Massachusetts. Who was at the other end of your downsizing hatchet, Tweed? Uh, worldwide whatever. I was halfway through my training as a generic brand special events manager when the bubble burst. Well, let's see if we can blow it up again. The voice you're about to hear, because you can't see him behind the screen, is a real employer with a real job opening. He'll test each of you with a job-related scenario, and your solution to the problem will determine which of you will walk away with a job, and which will return to a life of uncertainty, restlessness, and free-floating stress. Sounds like you've been there. (laughs) Mr. Gorgon. You're working for one of our communications divisions, cutting a data pathway through an old-growth redwood forest, and your blade accidentally cuts through a nest of endangered songbirds. How would you alert the authorities? Well, sir, where I come from, we have a saying. Eat what you kill, and have the EPA for dessert. Oh, you come strong out of the box there, Sterile. Mr. Eastern. You're working as a tour person in one of our theme parks, and the fun bus you're on accidentally runs over a trained pony at the petting zoo. How do you handle the shock crowd of tourists and school children? I'd remind them, sir, that it's a zero-sum life now. When that pony goes into our meat wagon, it means more hamburger for everybody. Oh, let's eat. And now the moment of truth. Who gets hired and who stays mired? The moment of truth. And yet, truth really doesn't have anything to do with it. If it did, the vast majority of the unemployed would be back at work. And the handful of lazy, system-playing-out-of-work slackers would fall off the radar. Or hire themselves out to GOP rallies as negative role models. I've made my decision. I don't want sterile. And I don't want tweed. I want them both. I want ruthless and toothless. I know good news when I hear it. Oh, thanks, Doc. That's Doc. Good. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Bernice, take it away. What a Dr. Blowjob, you got me a job. Now I can eat and I don't have to rob. You turned on your magic knob. They downsized and pink me. You made them rethink me, Dr. Blowjob. Thanks for the job. We put them to the test, and here's the best of the best. When we talk about the occupation in Afghanistan, call it a war if you wish, but it's not a war. It's an armed occupation. Uh, we listen to um, Ambassador Eikenberry, the former commander there, who says, it isn't working, we're making them dependent upon us, don't send more troops, Karzai is not a credible partner. We, we listen to people like Carl Levin, who goes there and takes a look and comes back and says, this just isn't happening. But here is U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Andrew Smith in the blog Truth Dig, who gives it to us from the ground level. He calls his blog War Without Purpose. 
Al-Qaeda could not care less what we do in Afghanistan, says Sergeant Smith. We can bomb Afghan villages, hunt the Taliban in Helmand province, build a 100,000-strong client Afghan army, stand by passively as Afghan warlords execute hundreds, maybe thousands of Taliban prisoners, build huge elaborate military bases and send drones to drop bombs on Pakistan. It will make no difference. The war will not halt the attacks of Islamic radicals. Terrorists and insurgent groups are not conventional forces. They do not play by the rules of warfare, uh, which uh, actually our commanders have drilled into uh, people like ourselves in war colleges and service academies. The rules of war, that's almost an oxymoron. And these underground groups are protean, changing shape and color as they drift from one failed state to the next, plan a terrorist attack, and then fade back into the shadows. We are fighting with the wrong tools. We are fighting the wrong people. We are on the wrong side of history, and we will be defeated in Afghanistan as we will be in Iraq. Oh, that's dismal, isn't it? We have stumbled into a confusing mix of armed groups that include criminal gangs, drug traffickers, Pashtun and Tajik militias, kidnapping rings, death squads, and mercenaries. We are embroiled in a civil war. The Pashtuns, who make up most of the Taliban and are the traditional rulers of Afghanistan, are battling the Tajiks and Uzbeks, who make up the Northern Alliance, which, with foreign help, i.e. our help, won the civil war in 2001. The old Northern Alliance now dominates the corrupt and incompetent government. It is deeply hated, and it will fall with us. Karzai knows, that this is me, Karzai knows the only way he's going to keep his head is if he keeps Americans around him. Because the minute we leave, he am a dead man. They're going to put his head in a bag and play polo. We are losing the war in Afghanistan. When we invaded the country eight years ago, the Taliban controlled about 75% of Afghanistan. Today, its reach has crept back to about half the country. The Taliban runs the poppy trade, which brings in an annual income of about $300 million a year. You can run a resistance on 300 mil. It brazenly carries out attacks in Kabul, the capital, and foreigners fearing kidnapping rarely walk the streets of most Afghan cities. It is life-threatening to go into the countryside where 80% of all Afghans live unless escorted by NATO troops. And intrepid reporters can interview Taliban officials in downtown coffee shops in Kabul. Osama bin Laden has, to the amusement of much of the rest of the world, become the Where's Waldo of the Middle East. Take away the bullets and the bombs, and you have a Gilbert and Sullivan farce. No one seems to be able to articulate why we are in Afghanistan. Is it to hunt down bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Is it to consolidate progress? Uh, Have we declared war on the Taliban? Are we building democracy? Are we fighting terrorists there so we do not have to fight them here? Are we liberating the women of Afghanistan? The absurdity of the questions used as thought-terminating cliches exposes the absurdity of the war. The confusion of purpose mirrors the confusion on the ground. We do not know what we are doing. Thank you, Sergeant Smith. You know, Dave, when when people, particularly during George Bush's administration, the younger, right? W. W. When they talk, when they make references to Nazi Germany and stuff, I would shudder because you know America was no Nazi Germany. But there are there are intimations of that thinking still going on today. In this case, we're going to talk about book burning amongst other stuff, uh-huh. all right? Uh-huh. Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Ron Ramsey lagging in the polls in the Republican gubernatorial primary race. This is, this is printed in USA Today, McNewspaper, from Talking Points Memo, a lefty blog. According to Talking Points, says he's not sure if constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion apply to Islam, since he says Islam may be a cult, not actually a religion. Read, I don't know if civil rights and the protection of society applies to Jews because they may be a conspiracy and not a religion or human beings. It reads close. Uh, it certainly does. Who's this guy? This is Lieutenant Governor Ron Ramsey. Ramsey did not dispute the video of his remarks posted on TPM, and and he res- responded with a comment in the email. So this is Ron talking. My concern is that far too much of Islam has come to resemble a violent political philosophy more than peace-loving religion. It's time for American Muslims who love this country, or the ones who love the country, right? not the ones who hate the country. No, 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 certainly not there. To publicly renounce violent jihadism and to drum those who seek to do America harm out of their faith community. So this, obviously also probably radical right-wing Christian, I hate to use the word, you know, but 
I mean, that's what he says he is. Is he going to drum out of his community all the racists and bigots and, you know, and, and horrible do-them-poorly types? Well, I, I, I get kind and of a nice picture. And they drum out the guys and they're, they're wearing, you know, they're wearing the sad expressions and they're going. No, that, that's, that, you, you know, it's like. People live here. They got chickens and gardens and everything. You yeah. know, the responsibility of the United States government is to take care of its citizens, not to judge them, yeah. not to make it more difficult for them. And if they aren't citizens, hey, come on down. I mean, really, isn't that wasn't that what it was all about? Besides, it's still all about that day. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Well, tell this lieutenant governor from where. This lieutenant. This guy is like <laughs> the glu- the man who is suffering from glutamatism. All right. Here's the other side All of it, right. though, because Islam's right. not doing well in this country. No. Because, right? of course, no. the thing about Islam, which makes it so powerful, you know, I traveled for a while in the Middle East, and I, I got involved, I, I met Sufi masters and did the whole thing. Islam has no official standing uh, anywhere in the sense of it doesn't have a Vatican, it doesn't have the Conference of Rabbis, it doesn't have Presbyter, it doesn't have the Archbishop of Canterbury. It, it may be established in various countries as the, in quotes, official religion, but the fact is it has no center. Anyone can be an imam. Anybody can be, you know, an ayatollah. You are recognized by the people as such. You don't get a degree and you don't go to a school. It's completely amateur, Okay. It's, that's what's, and that's what's so amazing about it. Its power is that it reaches out and you don't have to go anywhere to be you know, of Islam and you don't have to do anything except study it and, and teach it, no matter how good or bad the teachings may be, to be an imam or a mufti or whatever. You know, this is, so, okay, so there's no center church. So that Islam, you can't say, well, let's go to the Islam Vatican and ask them what they think about jihadism. Because the Islamic guy, the crazy guy in, in Egypt, thinks entirely different from the modern in Indonesia. But they're both Islam, you know. Yeah. So here we go. So the vast majority of U.S. pastors would never dream of burning a Koran, right? Okay? But there's a Florida church that's going to do just that. It calls itself a New Testament charismatic non-denominational church. It's the Dove World Outreach Church. At okay. 227 and three quarters North Plymouth Street. And right. Yeah. And this yeah. is, the, they call themselves a non denominational church that believes in the whole Bible, as if there are crypto Christians out there that don't believe in the whole Bible, right? But, they only yeah. believe in things that are convenient to them, whatever that means. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So now, step, he, the, the, the pastor there has a big sign out in front of his church that says, Islam is of the devil. Right? Okay. And he sent kids to school wearing T-shirts saying Islam is of the devil. Oh, and they, they all got to... sent home, oh, yeah, yeah, causing yeah. lots and lots of you know, publicity. Okay, now this is a guy, by the way, his backstory, who's being investigated because he's using his church to do nothing but sell stuff online. All right? He's just, he's a complete, he's a complete. The monk. church of me. The church of me. It is. According to Religion News Service, the church is planning international burn a Koran day. On the ninth anniversary of the September 11th attacks this year, uh, um, right in the middle of the Eid al-Fitr Islamic feast days at the conclusion of Ramadan. So at the end of Ramadan, they're going to burn Korans publicly in Florida, and that's going to help the boys in AFPAC. Boy, I'll tell you. I mean, I got to say, you know, all those countries are a long way away from here, and they can't tell whether these people are wingnuts or just ordinary Americans. So that's really a very problematic thing to do. One and two, what was that about peace-loving religions? Yeah, whatever happened to Christ dying for our sins and redeeming us? Hello, Ozaneers. That's what I call the couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. From the Gray Lady, 
As public anger rises over the government's slow and chaotic response to Pakistan's worst flooding in 80 years, hardline Islamic charities have stepped into the breach with a grassroots efficiency that is earning them new support among Pakistan's beleaguered masses. Victims of the floods and political observers say the disaster has provided yet another deeply painful reminder of the anemic health of the civilian government as it teeters between the ineffectual and neglectful. The floods have opened a fresh opportunity for the Islamic charities to demonstrate that they can provide what the government cannot, much as the Islamists did during the earthquake in Kashmir in 2005, which helped them lure new recruits to banned militant groups through the charity wings that front for them. In just two districts in this part of the Northwest, three Islamic charities have provided shelter to thousands, collected tens of thousands in donations, and served about 25,000 hot meals a day since last Saturday, six full days before the government delivered cooked food. The West says we are terrorists and intolerant, but in time of need, we're the ones serving the people, said Maulana Yusuf Shah, the provincial leader of one of the groups, Jamayat Ulema-e-Islam. Yeah, no, it's true. They are intolerant, and they are deadly, but they do know how to step in in a crisis. The fact is, one doesn't really have anything much to do with the other, except in the mind and hearts of people that they are serving. Mian Adil, the vice chairman of another group, Fala-i-Isyaniyat, said the aid he distributed at a center in one of the districts, now Shera, came with a message attached, not to trust the government and its Western allies. Fala-i-Isyaniyat is the charity wing and the latest front for Lakshar-i-Tayiba, the group behind the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai, India. So they can blow the hell out of women and children, right, in Mumbai, and then serve hot meals to people running from the floods in Pakistan and get good press for it. Jamaat Udawa is the political arm of Lakshar, which the United Nations has listed as a terrorist group. Not just the United States. The United Nations has listed them as a terrorist group. So by day, we serve the poor. And by night, we kill them. Under pressure since the Mumbai attacks, Jamaat Udawa had lowered its profile, but now at least one of its relief centers in Manwali in Punjab boldly flies its trademarked flag, displaying a black sword. What a nice thought. Served by the black sword. The very visible presence of such groups shows they continue to operate openly from their strongholds in Punjab province, the nation's heartland, to far-flung corners of the northeast, where they are expanding their legitimacy and, by extension, their ideology. Their gains come as the United States continues to struggle to win support in the region, despite lavishing billions of dollars in military and civilian aid on Pakistan since 2001 to encourage its help in fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. There she is, the Belle of Wellesley, the beautiful Hillary Clinton coming with buckets of dollars to these corrupt you know, uh, crypto terrorists hoping that they will somehow flush out Al-Qaeda and Taliban in Waziristan and the various other stands where the terrorists are making their stand. A 30-year-old tobacco dealer, Gohar Aman, said he got a taste of the nearly complete absence of the government's response when he got in his car to search for a relief post he could entrust with an $80 donation. For 25 miles, all he could find were centers run by hardline Islamic groups, an unsettling option for a man whose brothers are elected leaders of the governing secular party. Finally, he settled on the Hakina Madrasa, a fundamentalist boarding school whose alumni include Jaludin Haqqani, who runs the militant network that recruits suicide bombers to strike at coalition forces in Afghanistan from his redoubt inside Pakistan. Haqqani and his father, murderous sons of bitches. The school's leaders, including the director Maulana Shah, had converted their buildings just off the main road in Charsada into a dignified homeless shelter providing hot meals, medical treatment, and 24-hour electricity to 2,500 flood victims. It's our first time here, said Mr. Aman, giving a wad of cash to the director, but we see how comfortable the people are living here and we can't trust the government. President Asif al-Zadari, already deeply unpopular, <laughs> deeply unpopular, and in Pakistan, you don't want to be deeply unpopular because you're going to find yourself deeply underground, has come in for stinging criticism for leaving in the middle of the crisis to visit France and Britain as Pakistan grappled with floods that one provincial minister said would set the country back 50 years. The worst flooding in 80 years, and the president flies off to Western Europe. 
I don't care if the dowry is in Europe, Meingul 50, a laborer who lost his home and two cows, said in an interview. His government is in Pakistan. But where are they? This is Yeri Jero, and welcome to Empire Jeopardy, the web's most popular game show. I'm your host and witness as the Empire winds itself up and just keeps unwinding. All three contestants are back from last week. He's an urban vertical farmer from battered Washington and winner of this year's Golden Trellis Award. Meet Jack Browndart. What's the Golden Trellis, Jack? Uh, it's the Oscar of vertical permaculture, Yeri. I won it for growing 380 pounds of Brussels sprouts up the elevator shaft of an abandoned factory. I brought some for you. Thanks a bushel, Jack. He was the commander of former intelligence at Syncom Dreadsend AFPAC in Hintzville, Arkansas. But he's been picked to head the unmanned manpower center at the Drone Alone Air Force Base on Grower Island, Washington. Meet Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Uh, that's quite a promotion they gave you, Colonel. You know, once I heard about my 3D PowerPoint, and happy. <laughs> she was a loan denier for Windjammer Gorgle in Jockey Shorts, Illinois, until they kicked her upstairs to run the whole loan denial division in their Tipping Point Washington headquarters. Meet Swindle. Lou Zimmer. Happy about the transfer, Swindaloo? Working for Windjammer Gorgol is the best life sentence in the business, Mr. Yarrow. Well, the rules are as simple as our returning contestants. Win two and we talk, lose two and you walk. Tie it up and we come back for more. Okay, here we go. Four out of every five. What is the percentage of packaged foods that contain empty calories? What is the percentage of civilians collateralized by a predator-launched Hellfire missile? What is the percentage of the unemployed turned away from every job opening? Right you are, Swindaloo. A lot of them sleep outside my office. Well, let's go again. They're invisible, hard to catch, and worth $100 billion. What's left of the salmon in Alaska? Who are all the wealthy deadbeats who walked on their mortgages? Who are the 100 Al-Qaeda bums still operating in Afghanistan? Bingo, butter! <laughs> you can't find them, you can't drone them. So here we are, Swindaloo and Butter, we could talk. Okay. Jack, you're one wrong answer away from walking. Hey, don't sell my Birkenstock short, Gary. Here it is, last one. A clueless barfly with delusions of grandeur. Who is John Bomer? Right on, Swindaloo, it's John Bomer, the Sultan of Suntan. I speed dated him once. Five minutes was enough. And here's what you've won, Swindy. A million dollars worth of golden sacks of crap toxic derivatives. They're perfect for wallpapering your nest egg. A complete set of the president's heads in chocolate from the Franklin After Dinner Mint. Mm, just in time for my book group. And an all-expenses-paid weekend on Louisiana's Gas War Island Resort. Slip into your Hawaiian hazmat halter top, order up a couple of 30-weight mojitos on us, and chill out. Talk about a private beach, Swindy. You're the only living thing within 10 miles. I guess I could take off my top. Uh, not yet. This is Yeri Jero, host of Empire Jeopardy, reminding you that everybody else is just a failed attempt at being us. Looked all over this place 
everything I own I'm carrying on my back Oh, I got a little bit rolled in a dirty old knapsack Oh, I don't know where I'm going I only know where I've been Oh, the mean old world put me in the doggone shape I'm in With his newfound prominence as the author of a law that ignited a national firestorm over immigration, Arizona State Senator Russell Pierce hopes to keep fanning the flames of the issue long after the courts uphold or strike down his SB 1070. That legislation focused attention on how far Arizona police can go in determining the immigration status of anyone they suspect of being in the country illegally. Oh, just shades of Nazi Germany. Now Pierce, a deputy sheriff before entering politics, has a new target, the children of illegal immigrants. Oh, Mr. Himmler, rock on! The way he sees it, he's simply protecting taxpayers from those who are abusing public benefits like schools and and hospitals. Blame the parents, Pierce says in an interview with Politico. They're breaking the law and you can't reward them. Pierce said he plans to introduce a bill next year requiring that illegal immigrants pay for their kids to attend public schools. But that means you'd have to come into the school to pay for your kid being there because you're illegal. But of course, they can then stop you for being illegal and send you to jail and separate you from your kids. This doesn't make any sense. But of course, it isn't supposed to make any sense. It's supposed to punish the not me. And last month, he signaled he would author legislation to deny birth certificates to so-called anchor babies, the U.S.-born children of illegal immigrants. Of course, he's not alone. The, uh, this idea is already gaining traction among top Senate Republicans, like South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said last week that uh, he may introduce a constitutional amendment to retool birthright citizenship. This is Lindsey Graham, the man that people are saying is the, is the middle-thinking, perhaps he's a rational Republican. No, no, he's a silver-haired racist. And Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the man with no chin of Kentucky, along with Arizona's two senators, John Dangfence McCain and John Keel, said this week they'd like to see congressional hearings on the subject. Well, I'd like to see both John, both Johns, one HN and the other without an H, in the public stocks for even thinking that. By now, 
Opponents in Arizona know they can't underestimate Pierce's ability to mobilize anger over the immigration issue. Democrats have to understand if we don't start dealing with a solid reform package pretty soon out of this Congress, then we give the wingnuts like Russell Pierce the opportunity to not only introduce legislation, but mobilize people and keep this issue constantly on the front burner, said Representative Paul Grijavala, whose sprawling district sits on the U.S.-Mexican border. It's a political tactic he's used since 2000. And, he said, now it's got legs. Indeed, Pierce has been waging an unforgiving war against illegal immigrants, invaders, he calls them, for the better part of a decade. I wonder if he sees them as space invaders, maybe in one of his stupors, drug, alcohol, or just bad thinking induced. He he kind of like made this collage of aliens and invaders. Hmm, maybe they are from outer space, sucking up all our, our precious resources and our precious bodily fluids. In 2004, he led the successful campaign for Proposition 200, a voter initiative barring illegal immigrants from receiving state and local public benefits. Two years later, voters approved another Pierce initiative denying bail for illegal immigrants who commit serious crimes. Let them rot in jail! And though it stalled in 2008, Pierce introduced a bill banning students at Arizona's public universities and colleges from forming groups based on race. Why don't we take a great big knife and just cut it all around Arizona and then put a big magnet on it and lift it up and send it somewhere else? You've heard how terrorists plan to have babies born in the United States, then sent abroad to be trained and coddled into terrorists, only to return 20 to 30 years later to destroy our way of life. Well, you don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to enjoy the -the over-the-border taste of Anchor Baby Beer. Our secret? It's a foreign yeast that's been brought over to America, coddled and fermented until it wakes up to the call of action. Hey, it won't destroy your way of life, only your taste for any other brew than Anchor Baby Beer. Anchor Baby, a product of Blackout Brewery's Oath Keeper, Nevada, now legal in 38 states. Well, every once in a while, you know, uh, I have to just kind of look through the newspaper with, with a yellow highlighter because it just gets so crazy and circle things. Well, this is, this is one thing I circled in the, in the good old gray lady this morning in a totally different article about disgruntled people in Edison, New Jersey. Or maybe they were just oversexed people. Maybe they were just gruntled. Maybe they were just gruntled. Anyway, this was a quote. Ron Mizkowski, an Edison police lieutenant who says he's not a hardliner for either party and has grievances that are across the board, immigration, the wars, taxes, the usual. Okay, here's, here's what he said. I think what we need to do is stop going into this socialistic society, which is what I think his goal is. Uh, meaning Obama, of course, maybe he's not a true socialist, but his ideals and ideas are this kumbaya thing where everyone gets the same health care and the same benefits, and most of the health care is going to go to immigrants. Well, the country wasn't built that way. That Barack Obama is some guy. Uh, He just recently endorsed the controversial plan to build a mosque and Islamic center just blocks away from Ground Zero in Manhattan. Despite the strong objections of conservatives, say Politico, I wouldn't call some of them conservatives, fascists, bigots, hate mongers closer, but I guess conservatives will have to do. Both them, the ADL, the the Anti-Defamation League, Anti-Defamation League, should call them sometimes the Anti-Definition League, who... uh, are against the mosque for their own particular reasons, and those who lost loved ones in the September 11th attacks. Not all who lost loved ones. In fact, many of them are for the mosque or neutral on the issue. So don't get the idea that it's, you know, all of the people who were victimized by 9-11 are against this mosque. Ground zero is indeed hallowed ground, Obama said at a White House dinner celebrating the Muslim holiday of Ramadan. But let me be clear, as a citizen and as president, I believe that Muslims have the same right to practice their religion as anyone else in this country. That includes the right to build a place of worship and a community center on private property in lower Manhattan in accordance with local laws and ordinances. Man, he is absolutely straightforward on this. 
Having steered clear of the controversy for weeks, Obama took on opposition to the mosque directly, a move that many other Democratic lawmakers had been hesitant to do in the face of highly emotional appeals against the the construction. Hesitant is cowards, okay? Let's talk about cowardice versus bravery. But polls indicate the issue could be a high-voltage third rail for politicians who support the project. Yeah. A recent CNN poll found that 68% of those surveyed did not approve of building a mosque so close to where the World Trade Center towers fell, killing more than 2,000 people. As if 9-11 was a Muslim plot. In other words, not a plot carried out by people of the Muslim faith, but somehow some sort of official Muslim plot, the way that, for example, the the Pope may have put together the Crusades in the 12th century. No, there is no centralized Muslim uh, hierarchy. It's totally private. That's That's its advantage and its great disadvantage. You can't reach out and say, let me talk to the chief Muslim in the world. Let's get this taken care of because this person does not exist. As perhaps the White House had anticipated, the reaction from conservatives and at least one September 11th rescue worker was swift and angry. Uh, Most echoed Rick Lazio, the Republican gubernatorial hopeful who helped draw national attention back to the ground area mosque by using it against the Democratic rival Andrew Cuomo. And he says, President Obama and Attorney General Cuomo are still not listening to New Yorkers as if he is, right? Suggesting that the backers of the project have obscured their true motives and funding. This is not only a mosque, it is a cultural center, and it is being promoted by a group who are absolutely peace-loving, just the opposite of any, any, any whiff of jihadism. In his speech, Obama cautioned against drawing comparisons between mainstream Islam and the ruthlessly violent ideology of Al-Qaeda, which he said is a gross distortion of the faith. Right on. Our capacity to show not merely tolerance, but respect for those who are different from us, a way of life that stands in stark contrast to the nihilism of those who attacked us on that September morning and who continue to plot against us today, he said. Eloquent. On the button. Obama spoke before a group of about 90 people, including Muslim community leaders, ambassadors, dignitaries, and Representative Andre Carson, the Democrat of Indiana, one of the two Muslim members of Congress. After his statement, a number of individuals reportedly rushed to the stage to shake Obama's hands following his unexpectedly direct endorsement of the mosque. The project, spearheaded by the Cordoba Initiative, an organization that works to improve the relationship between Muslims and the West proposes that a 152-year-old building be demolished two blocks from Ground Zero to make way for the new Muslim community center and mosque. Now, opponents have argued that if constructed, the mosque would be a painful insult to survivors, rescue workers, and families of those who died on September 11th. Good. A community center is a painful reminder to them, right? Proponents countered that the presence of a mosque so close to the center of the attacks would be a powerful signal of American religious tolerance, a counterweight to the terrorist attack. At the same time, they argue that blocking its construction violates the constitutional right to freedom of religion. And again, they are right on. Oh, yeah, the wing nuts are after it. Oh, uh, Sarah Palin. Oh, she said it. it it's a stab to the heart, she said in one of her many Twitters. I mean, they really are Twitters when she does them because she is America's chief twit. Hey, uh, if you have a moment, uh, we'd love for you to join us on Twitter. This is a a whole new social network outreach that we're getting into. uh, And I think Twitter is is a really good way for people to meet each other and to know Oz and to spread Oz. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Oz Network and click on the follow button. And we'll be making some announcements on Twitter soon and you won't want to miss them. Okay, well, even if you do want to miss them, go up because that's your choice. A lot of incumbents lost their way in this last primary uh, because of the Tea Party movement and all of the, the rise of the crazies, most of them being Republicans, by the way, nice, serious, conservative Republicans, and some of them becoming, I think, heroes like Bob Ingalls of South Carolina, who lost his primary 71 to 29, an incumbent 
being beaten 71% to 29. Well, what did he do wrong? Well, he was on CNA and he said he talked uh, he talked about the crazy right-wing conspiracy theories that drove him out of office and his inability and refusal to go along with them. So CNN, CNN host Rich Sanchez went over a recent piece on Inglis and Mother Jones in which Inglis talked about the crazies that he would come across on the campaign trail. Sanchez read from Inglis's recollection of a conversation with some voters. Bob, what don't you get? Barack Obama is a socialist, communist, Marxist who wants to destroy the American economy so he can take over as, as, as dictator. Healthcare is part of that, and he wants to open up the Mexican border and turn the U.S. into a Muslim nation. Sanchez asked Inglis who these people were, and in response, Inglis conceded he might have done better politically had he humored them. That was several 80-year-old couples that were expressing their views. And you know, what I should have said was, over my dead body, that's going to happen. I can guarantee it's not going to happen. He said, but that would have been the better answer, wouldn't it, rather than the one I gave, which is, well, it's not quite that bad. Let's keep it within the realm of facts. He lost those votes. Uh Okay, then here's the other one. He says... um, uh, the one who said, Bob, I sat down and they said on the back of your social security card, there's a number. That number indicates the bank that bought you when you were born based on a projection of your life's earnings. I'm going to try and not laugh here, says Bob, and you are collateral. We are all collateral for the banks. Uh, I have this uh, look like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm trying to hide that look and look clueless. I figured clueless was better than argumentative. So they said, you don't know this? You're a member of Congress and you don't know that? Inglis responded, well, you know, I think that my colleague put it well to me last week. She said that her father used to tell her, leaders can either lead or mislead. And, you know, if you're going to lead, you know, you, you need to lead with facts and you need to help people know what is real when you face them. Facts are ir- irrelevant these days. Facts have nothing to do. It's, it's, it's what is claimed on Fox News, okay? And it's what people believe about, for one thing, about the Constitution. Well, but my favorite, I mean, David, I've heard a lot of these crazy theories, but yeah. I like the fact that my Social Security number is my collateral number at some bank, at that, some owes, bank that, o- that owns you. me, paid yeah. for me based on my projected earnings. Middle class, Jewish boy, Shaker Heights, fairly well thought out parent. No, He's worth more than, you know, some bum born in the, yeah, in the this burbs. Is, there's a guy from South Carolina, right? South Carolina. South Carolina is the home of the Confederacy. They have not changed in 150 years. Give me a break, you well, know. But this guy, Ingalls, is a good man. Well, I'm I'm glad they've got somebody down there who's a good man because (laughs) otherwise you just have to carve that state out and kind of float it out to sea. Along with Arizona. We'll talk about that later. Time magazine tells us that uh, as if the growing number of smoking bans in restaurants, airplanes, and other public places isn't sending a strong enough message, researchers now have the first biological data confirming the health hazards of secondhand smoke. Scientists led by Dr. Ronald Crystal at the Weill Cornell Medical College documented changes in genetic activity among non-smokers triggered by exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke. So you breathe in a little bit of that stuff and your genes start getting active in the wrong direction. Public health bans on smoking have been fueled by strong population-based data that links exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke and a higher incidence of lung diseases such as emphysema and even lung cancer, but do not establish a biological cause for the correlation. Now, for the first time, researchers can point to one possible cause. The passive recipients' genes are actually being affected. Crystal's team devised a study in which 121 volunteers, some of whom smoked and some of whom had never smoked, agreed to have samples of their airway cells studied for genetic activity. Subjects also provided urine so the researchers could measure the amount of nicotine and its metabolites, like continine, for an objective record of their exposure to cigarette smoke. Airway cells that line the bronchus, from the trachea all the way down to the tiny alveoli, Deep in the lungs are the first cells that confront cigarette smoke, whether it is inhaled directly from a cigarette or secondhand from the environment. Crystal's group hypothesized that any deterioration in lung function associated with cancer or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, including emphysema and bronchitis, in which the lungs lose their ability to take air, would begin with these cells. And indeed, that's what he and his team found. The researchers removed airway cells from the volunteers using a bronchoscope and tested all 25,000 identified human genes in them to determine which ones were active, either turned on or off, in response to the cigarettes. 
The results suggest that the genetic changes among the low-exposure volunteers, some of whom's exposure is exclusively secondhand, mimic those of smokers and represent the first molecular steps towards later lung disease. Oh, my, my. What is interesting to me is how sensitive the lung cells are to any cigarette smoke, Crystal said. It doesn't matter if you are uh, walking into a cocktail party where other people are smoking or if you smoke one cigarette a week. No matter what level of exposure you have, your lung cells know it and they are responding. It's sort of like canaries in the coal mine. They are crying out and saying, I'm changing here. I'm changing the genes that I turn on and off in response to this environmental stress. Help me! Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnes-Dormer of the First Blameless Church of Science. Fiction. And let's say thank you for that. Today, dear friends, let us also say thank you to the naysayers among us. To those who put a stop to progress and change. You know, change is a dangerous slogan. In this troubled world, change means to give up your righteousness. Change threatens the family. Change isn't in the Constitution. It's in the Declaration of Independence, and we went through all of that long ago. So to say no to everything is to make no mistakes, and let's say thank you for that. No closes that open door to your inner office. Say thank you. No inspires your co-working man or woman to say no to, out of respect and risk to continued employment. Thank you. No lets you off the hook. As the good booklet says, park and lock it, not responsible. No good turn goes unpunished, so no frees you from having to learn anything you don't need or don't want to think about. So be a naysayer, if you got the strength. Remember, dear friends, ideas may appear useful, but they could be wrong. You don't want to go there. This is Bill Barnstormer. Please send for my new Naysayers Workout DVD. It lets you do that bike thing while you learn the story of Ulysses and St. Anthony, who said no to the voluptuous demons of temptation and new ideas. And it tells the story of our confusing America today and, and lets you exercise your no to the elite minorities who lack the righteousness to say no. And instead they cry out, good idea, let's try it. <sighs> $29.99 to Naysayers, Box No, That's Mine, Arizona, 24680. The government's your friend, you see. That's what I have to say, or they will bury me. Don't you try to criticize, and don't you ever try to talk about their lies. I don't know what you've been told, but last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean and disagree and not have to face the guillotine. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. The Patriot Act is the riot act with a PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me and it's a crime 
speaks your mind And it's a crime Whoa, whoa, whoa Don't say a word Cause if you're her That plate is gonna Never made a contribution to the revolutionary man It's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime Oh, don't say a word Cause if you heard that blade is gonna fall This is from a very interesting blog called America at War. Well worth taking a look at. It's official. Although careful not to leave any footprints, the U.S. has boots on the ground in Pakistan. This was revealed on Thursday, the 22nd of July, when U.S. lawmakers Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul introduced a resolution in the House of Representatives, quote, directing the president, pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution Act, to remove the United States Armed Forces from Pakistan. I go on to quote, We have known that U.S. forces have been operating in secret inside the territories of Pakistan without congressional approval. We recently learned from an article in the Wall Street Journal titled U.S. Forces Step Up Pakistani Presence that the United States is engaged in a covert strategy to increase our troops' role there incrementally with the goal of convincing Pakistan to be more accepting of our presence. This is a violation of the 1973 War Powers Resolution and it is our constitutional responsibility as members of Congress to act, said Kucinich. We became enmeshed in a war against Vietnam with advisors leading the way, and we are seeking to nip in the bud an expansion of U.S. ground presence in Pakistan. The Wall Street Journal had reported that after waiting for months to, for approval from the Pakistan Army, the first 30 special operations troops arrived in Pakistan in October of 2008, within days after President Zadari took office in September of that year, in the guise of military trainers. We're here to train the military. Today, the U.S. has about 120 to 200 trainers in the country with an expanded scope of mission, and the program is set to expand further. The ghost of Vietnam is floating in this room. While it is public knowledge that U.S. and allied intelligence agencies and contracted mercenaries have been operating by recruiting spies, bribing, and assassinating targets inside Pakistan, this bill confirms the long-suspected presence of regular U.S. military forces in Pakistan. In two reports in The Nation, Jeremy Scahill has reported that in parallel with the CIA, soldiers from the Joint Special Operations Command of the U.S. Special Operations Command, each with its own Blackwater and other contracted personnel, deadly drunk mercenaries, were thought to be operating in Pakistan, recruiting spies, well, there's good work, running faux terrorists. That sounds very Parisian. Oh, look at that, I'm wearing the faux terrorists. Staging apparent terrorist incidents, buying friends, bribing the recalcitrant, and assassinating targets. They could shake hands with the Taliban. 
A much wider presence, however, was first confirmed by Christina Lamb's story in the New York Times on three JSOC soldiers in civilian clothes who were killed in Lower Deer while on their way to inaugurate a girls' school built with U.S. money. This is just a this ironically horrible uh, a scenario. I mean, it, it begs for black humor. Expectedly, the Kucinich Paul resolution failed to carry by 38 to 372 votes on July 27th. Right now, it's a dead issue. So, only the citizens of Pakistan, including those sworn to protect the sovereignty of Pakistan, can now, according to Kucinich and Paul, remove the United States armed forces from Pakistan. Get going. It would look as if some effect from the future goes back to us today. Well, here's a further account of my favorite weasel, Mitch McConnell from the New Republic. Mitch McConnell is careful with his words, so this dog whistle message to the far right during his Meet the Press appearance today is notable. McConnell, the president says he's a uh, the president says he's a uh, Christian. Uh, I take him at his word. I don't think that's in dispute. The interviewer. And do you think how how do you think it comes to be that this kind of misinformation gets spread around and prevails? McConnell, I have no idea, but I take the president at his word. To say that you take him at his word means two things. First of all, it suggests that the president's word is the only information we have to go on here. Of course, that's absurd. Second, it further suggests that the evidence being weak or inconclusive, McConnell is taking the high road by accepting Obama's testimony. The formulation is a sly way of siding with the truth so that he can't be pillared by the media while subtly suggesting that he is open to the views of Americans who think Obama is a Muslim. And of course, if reporters recognize the sneaky little game he's playing and demand a stronger formulation, all the better. It gets more chatter about Obama and possibly being a Muslim into the news. Oh, McConnell used this formulation twice, by the way. It's not an accident. This is the minority leader of the United States Senate. This weasel, this scumbag who, as part of this poisonous campaign of misinformation, to scare the American public into believing that our president is a Muslim and by connotation, a leader of the terrorists, Saladin arisen, right? Uh, a, 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 an anchor baby for Islam. And McConnell doesn't have the cojones and he's too sly and too greedy to stand up and say, this is bullshit. Of course he's a Christian. Everybody knows he's a Christian. That's not the issue. Here are my political differences with the President of the United States. No, these people have so little to stand on. They have no platform. They've got nothing. So all they can do is spread fear about the fact that our President is a Muslim. We are in deep shit. Well, it's the beginning of the month, early August, but it's the end of the show comes and goes, but we do not leave without tangulation. You know, uh, f- these five tang poets have lasted us 60 programs, because I believe this one has been number 60. Oh, since David, we is this number 60? Remember so. when we started going daily, back on the 22nd of April, we said, 60 shows, proof of pudding. There we we're go. here, we're proved, the pudding tastes just great. And here's the first piece of pudding. This is Wang Wei. This is the first poem in this book called The Spring Day at the Farm. Pigeons coo on the roof. Apricot orchards bloom white at the edge of town. The farmers are out with axes, pruning the mulberry trees, hoeing watercourses. Swallows hunt up old nests. Old men sit in the sun, almanacs on their laps. I have forgotten my glass of wine, thinking of lost friends, dead friends, in a blaze of old pain. Wow, in a blaze of old pain. They sure knew how to get at you, didn't they? Oh, pigeons on the roof at spring. Yeah, they, <laughs> the thing about these Tang poets, and they're not alone, but there's in this, but they, they, they really touch things so closely. They make little things 
so important because they are important. They reveal the importance of the everyday. Each line is really just two characters, two images. Oh, is and, that right? Two, the, two ideograms, right? Two ideograms. Oh, I didn't know that, yeah. And uh, the brilliance of these translations by David Young is that he really captures them. And there's a certain uh, duplication. Jade means a particular thing or gold means, you know. There are, are, as it were, cliché ideograms, but he just makes wonderful uh, music with them in this in this book from Oberlin College Press, Five Tang Poets. Hey, it's been really fun reading 60 of these, too. Oh, and there's more it? to come. And there's more to come, there's and there's more, more Oz to come. Anon, Anon. Yes, indeed. It's radio. There's our bed. Ooh, I love that. What modified disco, genetically modified music. (laughs) I'm Peter Bergman, your host on Radio Free Oz. Co-host is David Osmond. Bill McIntyre is our producer. Dave Maloney is our audio engineer. Chaz Glass is our financial man. Tom Goodwillow is the webmaster. Scott Wilds in charge of social media. And Phil Fountain makes it look oh so nice. Didn't he do a good job of integrating Dan Ellsberg's picture into the splash page last week? I thought it was fabulous. You know, I'm an iconoclast. I want, like, pure design all the time. You know, no, no pictures. But he did it. He's, he's showing me the way. So we'll show you the way next time on Radio Free Odds. <laughs>